Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Anything But Typical podcast. And <laughs> this is going to be a fun one because uh, we got Jason Tuttle on here. And uh, if you know Jason Tuttle, uh, you know what I'm about to say is true. And if you don't, um, since this is only an audio, what I want you to do is picture probably the number one fan in Charlotte of the 704 shop, because I think he has every edition of clothing that the 704 has issued. And by the way, they have really cool stuff. Um, but picture Mr. Clean, you know, jacked, bald guy, only with a beard. And then you got, you got Jason Tuttle, right? So Jason, here's the deal. You are on your way in the parking lot, going to your favorite place, Iron Tribe CrossFit, and somebody sees you strutting your stuff, getting ready to get a beat down in that CrossFit box. And somebody says, hey, that's Jason Tuttle. Yeah. And they're talking about you. Didn't realize that you could hear everything that they're saying. What is it that you would want somebody saying about you? Well, what they would say about me in terms of my, uh, my CrossFit skills or just my, uh, my, my life in general? Just about your life in general, but you could also put, you know, some cayenne pepper in there too about your CrossFit yeah. skills. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I think that I would want somebody to say that, that, uh, that Jason is a selfless connector, that uh, his favorite thing to do is, is make connections for other people. And so that benefits me in some ways when I make connections, but for the most part, I love connecting dots for people, whether that's, you know, connecting my neighbor with a pressure washer or connecting um, one of the coaches at our gym with a potential job opportunity, whether that's uh, introducing um, an investor to another real estate guy, like that's what I love to do. I love to make connections and connect dots and, um, and that obviously translates into the, the real estate stuff we do as well. But I think that in the gym, it happens a lot because there's, I mean, there are a lot younger people in there than I am. And so a lot of times they see us older guys and think, okay, well, what would you do if you were me? And so that's a fun, fun relationship to have with the, the young folks in the gym that keeps everybody, you know, A, feeling younger, but also humble about uh, being 47 and not being able to do what the 27-year-olds can do. Right on. <laughs> so before we go any further, um, and we could we could probably just talk for an hour about, about working out. So we won't do that. I think the people will be bored. But before we do, just want to give the listeners a little bit of a background. So Jason's uh, the principal of JTM Capital. And prior to that, he was a, a principal at Nova Capital Partners for 10 years. And then we're going to go further back also in, into some of his some of his prior experience. So Jason, I want to start pretty basic here, lay the foundation for people and, and be able to build from there. But how did you get into real estate investing in general? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty popular question that people ask me. And the truth is, I was just lucky. I mean, my dad has an MBA and a PhD in real estate. And so I grew up around it. Um, I was exposed to it my entire life. Now, I worked for my dad one summer in high school, and he really had me doing manual labor. And I swore I'd never work for him again because it was such an awful, hot, rock hill summer. Um, but then lo and behold, a few years later, I was back working for him for, and we worked together for about 11 years. But that's really the short answer was I got into it because my dad's into it. And I saw the opportunities that real estate had and, and he gave me an opportunity to do things that 24, 25, that um, no 24, 25 year old had any business doing. Right. But um, I think he trusted me. He liked the idea of family working for him and I do think I have skills that are um, whatever, like they connect well into the real estate development and acquisition world. So, but the short answer is my dad is a real estate guy and it was the path of least resistance. You know, I was really fortunate that I was born into, into his, <laughs> into his family. Right. Yeah. But, but everybody, not everybody follows right from what they see, right. My dad has a painting company. And I worked for, for him when I was younger, but I'm certainly not painting things right now. So 
when you were growing up in it when you were younger uh what what about seeing your dad do it attracted you to it or got you at least interested in it yeah i mean i think there are there are several things i mean one is um i really love the tangible nature of real estate that i can go by and see the things that we own or the things that we've developed and there's just a real satisfaction and gratification of the physical piece of a building or a tenant or even I mean, I still go by buildings that we used to own because I loved owning them and I have an emotional connection to them. And so there's something about that that's that's interesting. I think that um, when it comes to real estate development, I do think that I, I'm, I have a, the ability to kind of talk to anybody, that I can talk to the guy operating the backhoe about NASCAR and walk into the bank and talk to the bank president about Carolina basketball. And it's all the same quality of conversation. And so something about that, I think, was always... Uh, it just made the transition easy for me because I, I didn't have any problem with the, you know, the top of the, the ladder or the people at the bottom. And all of those people are important in those development deals. You got to make sure the backhoe guy is doing his job and the bank president's doing his job. And that's really the job of a developer is making sure that everybody is doing their thing on time at the same time. Um, I think some of it was just seeing the, the financial opportunities of real estate. I mean, it's, I think most people, well, real estate has a lot of great opportunities. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to go down hard, but there's a lot of opportunities to grow a really great uh, business over time. Um, so I really like that part. Um, and I also saw how much my dad liked it. I mean, my, my dad doesn't really have any hobbies. Like he doesn't play golf. He, he really just works. And it's because he loves it and he's good at it, you know? And so that's another piece. And the last thing I would say is, um, uh, I saw the community kind of impact opportunity of real estate where um, it's, it, it can be so local that like my dad and my brother are in business down in Rock Hill and um, they're really the go-to shop in Rock Hill, Fort Mill, Chester, Lancaster, Indian land. And they're involved in all the, all the things down there. I mean, my brother was just, um, named the Chamber of Commerce chairman. I mean, it's just what you do when you're in a small town. And I love that when I worked for debt for my dad, I did a lot of that for him. But then in the last 10 or 12 years, since I've been on my own, I've done that similarly, but my own ways here in Charlotte and other cities where we own properties. I really like getting to know the political leaders, the, um, the nonprofit leaders, the movers and shakers in the business. And that's how I think we stay relevant over time is knowing who's moving the, le the levers and having influence in those places. And when you're in a small town like Rock Hill, you can have a whole lot of influence. When you're in a, big a bigger city like Charlotte, influence is a lot more nuanced, but there's still a lot of opportunities to um, be connected to, to know, to have a relationship with city council people, county commission people, developers. And I, I really enjoy all that. I mean, that's, part of the making connections is I have a pretty broad network and um, I love leveraging that network for other people, but it's also, like I said before, for my own, own good too. Yeah. So let's, let's dive a little bit into, you were saying earlier, getting some opportunities at, at age 24, 25, that most people wouldn't be able to get. Let's talk a little bit about the, that dynamic of being able to, to work in your father's company. Cause I think that's, that's unique, right? Sometimes it works great for people. Other times it could ruin families. So what was that dynamic for you? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. My dad, at, at the time when I worked, I worked for my dad from 99 to till, till 2010. So obviously through the recession, um, through a big real estate boom, and then through a recession, um, he and my uncle were 50-50 partners in the business. Um, and so it was truly a family business. And that presented lots of opportunities and lots of challenges. You know, I mean, some some parts of that were hard that you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table talking about grading permits because that's what you do. You know, right. I mean, it's a, a lot of your family life revolves around the family business. And so that's challenging. Or if there's any kind of conflict, it's just more intense when it's your dad. You know, like when you're, when you have conflict with the boss, it's one thing. When your conflict with your boss is also your dad, it just adds another layer of, um, I guess it just adds another layer of emotion to it, you know, and I'm a pretty, a pretty emotional person. I, I, 
for the most part, wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm a pretty high energy, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rallier, you know, I'm a, I'm a cheerleader. And so, um, when things would get difficult, which they always do, it's, it's nothing wrong with my dad. It's just the way life is right. When things would get difficult, it was just a little bit more difficult because he was dad and not just, you know, Frank or whoever somebody's boss would be, you know? Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. So you, you do that from 99 to 2010 and then you transition and now you're a principal into, into your own place. What did, what were some of the biggest challenges of that transition of going and working for a company that somebody else owned in this case, your father, and then being the person that's owning and running a company? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'll back up one step and say that um, the transition was more of a necessity than it was um, something that I'd always longed to do. I mean, I, I had talked to my dad, my uncle for years about buying into the total company and being an owner in it. And we'd had those conversations, but it never really materialized. And then 2008 and nine hit and it was a total disaster. But, um, but in 2010, as we're kind of coming out of the recession, um, I, my experience was that the suburbs like Rock Hill really suffered more than the cities did. Um, and, and there's various reasons for that. But um, when my wife and I got married in 1999, we moved to Charlotte. So I was commuting down to Rock Hill. So I'd always lived in Charlotte um, and worked in Rock Hill. And so I just saw opportunities in Charlotte um, to do business there. And so my my business, my business partner in 2010, when we started, or 2011, when we started Nova Capital Partners, was my roommate from college, and so we were good friends. We, I mean, obviously, been friends for 10 or 15 years at that point, and um, had been working on a couple of deals together on the side, but could never really get any traction because he was working somewhere else and I was working somewhere else. Um, and so then we just decided, hey, look, let's just let's just do this. I mean, you know, we're not making any money where we are really, and so. Um, and, and to be clear, like when I worked for my dad, I was always hundred percent commission. Like I, I didn't make any salary there. Like I did kind of run my own business. I was a 1099 employee. Like it was his company, but you had to kill what you ate. Um, and so making that jump wasn't as difficult as it might seem because I was still doing my own thing in a lot of ways. So, right. so I made the jump in 2011 and Andy and I, um, so my partner was Andy English. He's in Raleigh. Uh, we were roommates at UNC together. And, um, and so we found this little shopping center on independence and said, well, okay, let's try it. See how it goes. And sure enough, we got under contract, raised some money from investors. We assumed the loan because we couldn't even get a loan at that point. Um, and that was our first little deal. And, uh, actually we're getting ready to put that one on the market here in about two weeks. So, um, it's been kind of a fun full circle on that one. We've owned for well over 10 years at this point. So I want to uh, put a little bit of a pin and go a little bit deeper on a couple things with you. One is, you know, a, a general observation in business that communication and dealing with conflict is one of the biggest challenges in any organization, anytime you have more than one person in the organization. <laughs> and sometimes if it's just you, yourself and you, uh, you know, you can have conflict within yourself too, but especially the human dynamic. And so I'm just curious, especially when, you know, you're, you've gone to UNC Chapel Hill, you've got, you know, the degree you're, and you've worked a little bit before you go back and work for your father. How do you, how did you deal with that conflict? What are the things, you know, that you're willing to share that, that helped you deal with that, where you've got the dynamic of boss, but also dad. And then how, how do you leverage that in your own thing? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I worked for my dad, um, I didn't really face conflict head on very well. Um, I think that's something that I, I mean, I was so young. Um, I just wasn't really mature yet in the way to live life. Um, and so I, I would say probably I learned more working for dad, what not to do with communicating about conflict than I learned about what to do. Just the mistakes that we made of, or the mistakes I made of 
not communicating clearly, not setting expectations, not saying this is the way I think it's going to be. Do you agree? But waiting until it was all over and the checks were distributed, and like, well, wait a minute. I thought it was supposed to be X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think I learned that just letting things go is not the right way to deal with it. That it's better to be clear and to be upfront and to communicate clearly and over communicate that I think I'm better at that now. I know I'm better at that now, but then I was then because I was terrible at it then. So if I, even if I do it a little bit now, it's better than what I wasn't doing when I was 25, 26, 27, 28, trying to figure out, you know, how to raise a family and how to be married. And I mean, it was just so much going on at that time, but I don't think conflict was something I was, I was good at at all. So, so I've definitely had to learn that over the years. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I love what you said that I learned more about what not to do. Well, sometimes that is a great teacher if we're paying attention. Otherwise, we're de destined to con continue to repeat that. Um, yep. Next question I've got for you, though, is, you know, there were there were two downturns. Oh, oh, one after 9-11, um, but then massive downturn. 0809, especially if you had leverage, uh, it was crushing. Um, talk to us a little bit about what that was like as a holder of real estate um, when it felt like the world was completely coming unended, up, upended, banks calling notes, etc. Like, tell us some stories about what that was experience was like and things that you learned because of those experiences. Yeah, I mean, uh, fortunately, I didn't own anything back then. Um, and it's funny because I'd really, so back back in, in 2006, 7, 8, 9, that was when we were doing a lot of residential development, building a lot of subdivisions in Fort Mill and Rock Hill and had home builders that would buy lots. And I mean, it was just almost the worst thing you could be in um, at the time. Um, but I kept asking dad to let me invest in these deals. And he was like, I don't, I don't need your money. I've got plenty of other investors that are, that are doing these deals. I don't need your money. And I remember being really mad at him about that for a season. And now looking back, I'm really grateful that I didn't because all that money would have evaporated, you know? And so, um, so I'm grateful that that's actually the way it played out. Um, but the way that it all went down for me was um, I went to my dad and said, Hey, you, you own this, this medical park over across from the hospital in Rock Hill. Why don't you guys sell it? You know, you've owned it for, 15, 20 years, whatever. Why don't, why don't you consider selling? He's like, well, do you think you might want to buy? I was like, sure. I mean, any, you know, lots of people would. So we, we listed it, put on the market, sold it to a group in Charlotte and, and they bought it. And I made a really big commission selling that deal. Um, I mean, it was the biggest commission I'd ever made. And my wife and I were super excited. That was probably like in the beginning of 2008. And we pretty much lived off that for two years um, because nothing much else was coming in. So um, we were trying to wrap up these subdivisions and those were bleeding money and um, there weren't a lot of deals to be done then. Banks were obviously not really doing anything um, other than calling notes. Um, Dad was trying to unwind a bunch of his stuff. And so we were really scraping to figure things out in 2008 and nine as, a, as the total family. Um, and so I was really, again, just really fortunate that we closed this one big deal made this big check and lived off that for a long time um, until Andy and I got started in 2011 and bought that little shopping center on independence. And um, I did a couple little things here and there representing some people, but um, it wasn't much. So yeah, it was a dark season for sure. I mean, we had, let's see, my kids would have been, um, my kids would have been like five, six and like, three and four. So I mean, had little girls at home and um, it was, it was a tough season for sure. It was, it was a storm that we weathered. 2001 was a little different. I mean, I was so new in the business um, and we were so newly married and everything was just crazy. You know, you're coming out of <laughs> Y2K chaos and 9-11. Um, I don't remember that one as much being as difficult as 2008 and nine going into 10. So when you were, yeah, 
08, 09, and early 10. And then some, I was in uh, involved with a business that it was so de delayed that 08, 09, 10 were still banner years. And then it really hit them. They actually did the insulating glass sandwiches for the big residential, you know, um, vinyl window replacement window world. It hit them hard in 2011. That's when, you know, they, they lost half of their business, you know, 52 million to 26, which was a really, really tough one. So it kind of varied by industry. It seemed like how, how long it took to shake through the supply chain and in the various industries. Um, so you lived on your proceeds from that big commission, um, being a hundred percent commission guy, um, eat what you kill guy. What did you do? Like, you know, cause those were dark days, you know, what was that like, you know, you looking for stuff, but nothing's happening. Like, what did you do during that period of time? Well, I traded my Tahoe for a Prius. I mean, literally, that, that was like one of the most telling things was like, okay, this is a big, expensive car to drive. And I bought a used Prius um, and really didn't have much money in it because I traded the Tahoe for it. Uh, that, was, that was one of the most, uh, I don't know, uh, tangible things I did was just, just to try to save on anything, you know? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's a little bit of a blur. I mean, um, there was a season where my Andy, who would be my business partner now, we we really pursued buying a daycare for a while. Um, and there's a long backstory to it that's not really that interesting. But it's just one of those things we were just trying anything that would we thought we could make some money at, you know, and the daycare had a real estate play and all that was kind of interesting. We had some connections in the business. And so we pursued that for a while. Um, I ended up representing a doctor who bought a building over at the Arboretum, helped him lease that up. Um, it had been vacated by, um, uh, I think Alan Tate was in there and a Gold's Gym were in, were in the building and they both left and he bought it basically empty, moved his office in there and then I helped him lease it up. And that was, that was a solid probably 18 months of work trying to lease it. And it's at the Arboretum at you know, Providence and 51. And it's a great location. It's where they're, it's behind where they're building the new Publix. Um, and he since sold it and made a ton of money on it. Um, so that was a fun project to work on in the meantime. Um, I don't know what else we were working on then. I mean, we were, I was still doing a lot of third party brokerage leasing and selling, which I haven't done since I left working for my dad. Um, but I think that the, the biggest thing I took away from it was this whole like eat what you kill mindset of like you make a big commission and then you you live off of it for a while and you have to make another one to live off of it for a while. And um, the goal when we started Nova Capital Partners in 2011 was to create passive income. And so very different from what my dad does, who's predominantly a developer where you're typically buying something, either rehabbing it, building it new, leasing it up and then selling it. Um, so you have these big hits and long valleys in between. Um, we really wanted to create passive income where we were buying income producing properties and then running them so that we could weather these storms. And so our goal, our first goal was to have enough passive income to cover our living expenses. I mean, obviously that's a pretty good goal. Um, and before we knew it, we were making more property management income from the deals we owned to cover our expenses. And that, that was when we really felt like, okay, we've kind of got this figured out now. So we just started buying B and C class properties that had good income streams, um, buying most of them at pretty low prices and then just running them and collecting rent and paying expenses and distributing dividends to investors. And, um, and we did really well doing that. I mean, it's a, it's, and that's still what I do. I mean, I love it. I love the idea of, um, kind of having control of your own destiny by owning a property that has tenants in it, as opposed to you got to go find the next deal or find the next tenant or lease another space or represent another person or find another buyer. Like we, we, I'm thankful I don't have to do that anymore because it's a grind. Um, I really like the, the passive income where I can, I can say if I want to work, I can. And if I don't, I don't have to because we have passive income coming in. The good thing is I really like working. I really like what we do. And so it's fun to 
I mean, I always say January's and Mondays are my favorite because there's so much opportunity. Um, you got five days left, you know, you got 12 months left. I love, I love starting new things. I love change. And, um, and that's what I love about buying properties is the challenges that every property comes with are so different. Um, and it's really fun to tackle them. So take us through, as you make that transition, you're, you're at Nova now, you're running this, you're looking for different types of deals. Um, take us through your evaluation process of a deal. What are, what are the things you're looking for? What are massive red flags, things like that? Just peek behind the curtain a little bit. Yeah, so the way that, um, the way that Andy and I always set our deals up and the way I'm doing it now in this new iteration of, of JTM Capital is we kind of back into it. Um, we really have always thought about investors first. And so how do we, how do we get investors the return we think they're gonna require in order to invest in this deal? And so um, different from a lot of real estate guys that I know, um, we only quote to our investors a minimum annual cash on cash return. This is what you're going to get from us in quarterly distributions. We're not going to bet on some future sale event in five years to get you an annualized IRR of 17.25%. I just don't really believe in that. I think that it's too hard to predict values in the future in the kind of properties we do. If it's apartments or self-storage, that's more predictable. But in the kind of stuff we do that's not commodity, um, it's really hard to predict what the future is going to look like. So we want to commit to our investors. We're going to get you cash flow dividends every quarter. And that's our job. And so we always looked at deals and said, okay, if we were to buy it for this price, how much could we distribute to the investors if we split it this certain way? And that's how we would start. And if we couldn't get to that hurdle, then we didn't buy it. And um, so that's the way I still think about it is if I want to get investors an 8% cash on cash return on this deal or a 10% cash on cash return, what do I have to buy it for in order to get them that return based on loan terms and all the other variables that go into it? So I I, I guess that I would say we kind of started at the end and worked backwards as we thought about deals. Um, Red flags. as Nova Capital Partners, there was only one deal that we went under contract on that we didn't close. Um, and that was a, um, a retail center in near Charleston, in North Charleston. And um, we really liked that deal. I mean, it had a lot of upside. It was, it was really awesome. It wasn't sexy, but it was awesome. It's next to a trailer park across from the airport. Um, but uh, we just had some kind of weird feelings, some weird vibes from the seller. I feel like they were being a little cagey about some of the, the details. And so somewhere along the way, Andy ended up talking to the CFO of one of the tenants. He was like, oh yeah, we're definitely not keeping that store open. And so that was like, all right, that's clearly a red flag. There's a 65,000 foot tenant in a 225,000 square foot shopping center. Like if they're not going to stay, we can't buy this. And it probably would have been fine for the first three or four or five years, but then they would have been gone. And backfilling that kind of space would be very difficult. So um, I think that Andy and I did a really good job. I think we do a really good job now of really digging deep into the details, you know, making that one extra phone call to figure out what's going on here. Why, do, why is my spidey sense tingling? You know, what's, what feels weird about this that we got to go, we got to go figure out. Um, so, but, but yeah, I mean, red flags, I think that for the most part, when we, are going under contract on a deal, we've done the bulk of the due diligence that would turn up red flags. Um, yeah. So then when we're in the due diligence process, then it's just checking off the boxes of things that we already are pretty sure are true. Yep. And is that is that pretty structured for you? Are you a person where you've got it all laid out of here's all the things we need in our due diligence, go through the list? Yep. Yeah, we've got a really detailed due diligence process. Um, so, so I'll back up and say, so Andy and I were, were partners from 2011 to um, 2021. In 2000, maybe 19, 18 or 19, um, Andy had the idea of launching a fund uh, to raise money to go buy a bunch of deals together. And so we raised like $30 million and bought, I don't know, 2 million square feet of properties from Jacksonville, Florida to a marina up in Virginia. I mean, it was just all, all kind of stuff. But because we were buying so much so fast, um, 
and not really so fast. I mean, it, it seems like a lot, but because we were buying so much, we had to have a, a really tight process that we could delegate pieces out to other people. And so that ended up being my job. And so I, I came up with the, the due diligence process we created for acquiring these properties in the fund. And then I've obviously just carried it over into this new iteration with JTM. Where we're, we're now what I'm doing is back what Andy and I used to do, just buying deals one at a time, separate LLCs, investors in each deal, um, as opposed to the fund model that, um, that Andy's running with um, in Raleigh now. But yes, it's very detailed. It's very structured. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm really proud of the process. I think we've got a really good team that runs a really good process. So you hinted at it a little bit there of like what, what Nova was doing when you were there and then getting the fund and things like that. And now JTM. So, so talk a little bit more about what led to starting this new iteration of JTM Capital. Yeah. So um, I think it was 2017, maybe um, we sold a, where the common market is in Monroe Road. Um, that's the building that I still go to all the time because I freaking love it. But we sold that back in 2017 and it was, it was a home run deal. I mean, we bought it at a great price. We worked really hard and got it fully leased. Um, and then the neighborhood turned in our favor. And so kind of all the stars aligned and we sold it and the investors return was like 318%. It was like a 60% IRR. I mean, it was just, it was a stupid kind of deal. And so we sent all this money to investors and they're like, well, hey, this is great, but what do we do with all this money? We give it to you to give us cash flow, not to give it back. And we're like, well, <laughs> you're welcome. I mean, we just got 300% of your money back in four years. Um, but that's where Andy's idea of the fund came in large part. I mean, it's not the only place, but in large part, trying to figure out a way that we could compound cash flow and deal returns into future deals. So he, he created the ever, this evergreen fund called the Perkins Fund. Um, and so that's what we started running with. We raised, like I said, we raised $30 million, bought a bunch of deals. And, um, and because, the, because of the fund's size, um, uh, everybody had to have a job. You know, it wasn't like Andy and I used to be where you're just kind of a jack of all trades. You know, Andy and I tried lots of different ways to divide duties between like, well, I'll take care of the Charlotte stuff and you take care of the Raleigh stuff, or I'll take care of property management. You take care of deals. And you just kind of have to do a little bit of everything as small business people. But with the fund, it was, wasn't really small business anymore. It was a big business. And so my role had, like I said, kind of evolved into the deal closing guy. And I enjoyed it. Um, I think I'm good at it. Um, Andy has built a really good team in Raleigh, but that team is in Raleigh and I'm here in Charlotte. And so it got a little lonely in the early days of, of Nova, everything we owned was in Charlotte. And so we had a team here, property managers and asset managers and everything was happening here. And then as the fund evolved, all the kind of the center of gravity moved to Raleigh and there's a great team there. And I really miss honestly working with those people day in and day out. They're really, really good people. And I still talk to them a lot because Andy and I still own stuff together that his team manages. And so we're still partners. Um, we're still really good friends. And, um, and I really miss that team. But I'm not good in isolation. Like, I'm not good here by myself on an island having to do my own work by myself. And so I told Andy, um, I guess the end of 2020, that um, at the end of the first quarter, I wanted to spin off and go back to doing what we did. Because I really love all aspects of finding deals, vetting deals, raising money closing deals, running deals. Like I love all that stuff. And with the fund, I wasn't going to get to do all the things anymore. And so um, that was really the genesis of all of it was that, that I, I wanted to kind of go back to what I enjoyed the most and what I've had the most success at. Um, and so that's kind of where JTM started. So I'd actually uh, engaged a, a coach, um, a business coach in uh, like June of twenty. I don't know, 19, I guess, 2020, I don't know. And we worked together for six months and did a really deep dive on what am I good at? What do I enjoy doing? Who do I enjoy doing it with? Where do I enjoy doing it? Like all those kinds of things. What's my, how does my wife think about it? How do my kids think about it? And um, we really spent a solid six months working through that. And the end result was, I just want to go back to what we used to do, which is a little bit of, every, of, every, of everything. Um, not being a specialist, but being a generalist and then hiring specialists around me who can do 
the detail stuff of the accounting or the lease scrubs or whatever, um, while I go do my thing of finding deals, sourcing investors, all that kind of stuff, talking to banks. That's the stuff I love doing. Making connections, you know. So we're going to take a scenic overlook on the Blue Ridge Parkway right here. So we're going to pull over. We're going to look at the Vista. And for anybody listening to this, they're like, it, it's just uncanny to me of similarities of the things in so many business owners and entrepreneurs that we've interviewed on this for the last almost two and a half years, not quite. One is like this awareness and getting somebody outside the jar to help them. So you said you brought in a business coach and I had written on my, in my notes here before you went down that path with the, um, the coach was it's like your, your personal energy is palpable. Like it's just positively infectious. And I wrote down thrive with her. Like, how did you like, because it's, pretty apparent that you know the stuff that makes you come alive the thrive side and you're aware of the stuff that makes you wither and i just thought oh wow and then you answered you answered the question which was like you you did a deep dive on looking at those things and then adjusting based on the outcome of those things not based on what does somebody think I should be doing? What does a real estate professional, what should they be doing? So I just thought, wow, that's really cool. So scenic overlook, <laughs> just like, that was really cool. I, I do have another question though, that's just kind of a completely, it, it's a hard left turn a little bit, but um, one of the things that's also palpable in the marketplace right now, so we've got a whole bunch of global, uncertainty. We've had two years of freaking COVID and all of that heaves and hoes and all of that. You know, how does that, how is that impacting you also with, you know, what you've experienced through 01 and especially 08 and 09 and what you observed, whether it directly impacted you, which it did. Um, but like, how are you navigating that personally, as well as your business strategy in the midst of such upheaval and uncertainty? Well, I would say, um, and you're talking about COVID specifically, like how this COVID season. Yeah, that, but also yeah. look at what's happening. You know, you've got supply chain issues. You've got, you know, nuclear war threats from Putin and, yeah. you know, yeah. all this other. More of the, the season of volatility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, um, I mean, my initial, my instinct is to say that um, COVID really didn't affect our business very much. I mean, even though we owned real estate and we own a lot of office, um, we were really fortunate. We had, I think out of our, out of, so we, we talk about in terms of legacy deals and fund deals and now JTM deals. So the legacy deals that Andy and I owned together, I think we had like one tenant we gave some free rent to for a while that then paid it back by the end of the year. Like we were really fortunate. We had very few hiccups in our business. Um, and I would say similarly, personally, um, even though COVID was obviously challenging for a number of reasons, um, not the least of which being my, my daughter's anxiety about COVID generally, and that was pretty messy, but we just kind of doubled down on our neighbors. I mean, we spent a lot of time with our neighbors and really grew to, appreciate them. And I mean, most of them have been neighbors with us for 15 years. And so it, it really was a sweet season of just having the dogs out in the front yard and drinking a beer and, you know, hanging out. And um, so that was really good for us. And then uh, February before, uh, I guess, February of 20, I moved into my new office. And so then COVID obviously shut everything down March of 20. Um, and I was really in a building all by myself. And so I was really fortunate there too. And so was my family that I could be out of the house, come to work every day, have a place to go. The gym is in the building with me. Um, so that was convenient. Um, but it was just a great season of just being here in this, in this space that I really love and um, 
then my wife and kids didn't have to listen to my loud voice on the phone all day long while they're trying to do school and work and everything else. Um, so generally speaking, I would say COVID for, for our family and for me personally wasn't as traumatic as it was for a lot of people. Um, we all got it over Christmas a couple of years ago. That was pretty brutal, but you know, we suffered through it together and it was, I don't know, kind of a sweet season, I thought. Um, but now I feel like now it's more bumpy because as we're coming out of that and I'm, I'm working on a big development deal, um, actually with my dad and my brother now, I went to them and said, hey, let's, let's work on something together. And so we, we we're working on this development deal and the volatility there is very challenging. I mean, it is a real problem. And so what we decided to do was just kind of surround ourselves with professionals that we trust, um, like David Privatera, who's been on your podcast. He's our contractor and my neighbor. Um, and just said, you know, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be hard, but we trust you to help us figure this out together so we can all make money and be successful. Um, but it's, it's definitely challenging. And, and the, the, the looming threat of interest rates is concerning. No idea what that's going to look like. The, it's not looming anymore, but the actual threat of inflation is really challenging. I mean, the, the costs on our development project, which will probably break ground in like June, um, the prices have gone up dramatically since we started working on it a year ago, as you can, as you can imagine. Um, but I think, I think my philosophy has always been like, let's just take one step at a time. Like we, we just got to deal with what we got in front of us today and let's let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. I mean, I think we can be wise about trying to anticipate what's coming, but, um, I feel like nobody ever does a very good job of that. <laughs> I think that we just have to take what we have in front of us every day and, and move forward with what information we've got. Um, and also think a lot about um, we make decisions kind of based on following green lights. As long as the lights are green, we just keep driving. The lights are yellow. We slow down a little bit and, and, and question it. If, a, if we run into a red light or a red flag, um, we stop and we reassess. Say, okay, is this really what we want to do or should we take a hard right? Um, and we've just had a lot of green lights, I feel like, in the last uh, 12 months since I started JTM. And it's just been really encouraging. You know, it's been, feels very validating, um, kind of going out on my own again, and this time really just on my own. Um, but it's been a really validating time, I think. And, and, and that's all in the midst of, I mean, despite all the volatility, what's not volatile is the, uh, the real estate market in, in Charlotte. I mean, it's, it's super steady and incredibly robust. Um, there may be some argument that it, pricing is volatile because it's going up so dramatically, and that's true. But it is a really fun place to do what we do. And um, the Carolinas is a great place to, to be in the real estate business, for sure. Yeah, so one more. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You're good, Gary. All right, so one more question. From the time we first met, thank you, David Privatera. The uh, the best radio voice in Charlotte that is not on the, the radio. I mean, yep, <laughs> it's legendary. <laughs> and if anybody's listened to this and you haven't listened to the David Privatera, uh, I think he was our third or fourth uh, yeah. episode. So uh, go back and listen to him because it's really fun, and he, you'll understand what I'm talking about with his radio voice. But what what has been very apparent with me about you is just you've got this gratitude that seems to exude out of you talk to us about that you know because it's it's palpable help us understand you know how do you maintain and what what has helped you foster the sense of gratitude now i think it goes back to kind of where we started where um i've always known that i am where i am because of how i was born and I didn't choose that. It was just a gift. And so I got to be in this business and have the, the failures and the successes that I've had primarily because I um, capitalized on that opportunity, you know? And so I think that realizing I didn't earn my way here. I mean, I, maybe that's not true. Maybe I did earn some of it, but I'm here by and large because of this. I, I started out on third base and it was just really fortunate. And so I've always thought about life from that perspective that um, I got to do something at 24 
developing medical office buildings that no 24 year old gets to do at the level I was at. And so now looking back, I mean, I was 20, geez, almost 25 years ago. Um, you know, I think I've just tried to do the best I could do to maximize that. I think also that um, our family has always been, my parents have always been very involved in their community, like I mentioned before. Um, so that's a big part of my life too, is um, being on serving on boards and serving with nonprofits here in the city. And um, it's a real, it's really important to me. And I think it helps keep me a little more grounded about how people really live. <laughs> um, and um, I think also, I, it, particularly in this last 12 months where um, I was coming out of a pretty volatile 24 months before that, both with all the, the fun stuff and raising all that money and all the intensity and pressure of all these deals. And Andy and I had an development deal that had gotten really screwy and it was incredibly intense and stressful. And the most stress I've ever experienced was through that season. Um, and so now, so now I'm then making the decision to leave, which was difficult to start my own company. And now to look back 12 months later and say, we're way further along than I thought we were going to be. Um, and so I, I just, it, it just, it all feels like a gift in a lot of ways. It just feels like that, you know, all the hand wringing I went through trying to make the decision now looking back and saying, you know, that was a pretty good decision. My wife's saying, you should feel pretty, pretty gratified that this decision you made has worked out pretty well. Um, and I'm also, um, I also take my faith pretty seriously. And I think that, um, I think that everything really is a gift. I mean, there's, there's a verse in um, second Chronicles, I think that talks about everything in the heaven, heavens and earth belongs to you, O Lord. And this is your kingdom. Like this is all God's stuff that we're just here to take care of. And so I feel that sense of it too, that I'm here to steward these things that I'm given and to do the best I can with, with what skills I've got. And I think that that helps keep me uh, hold things a little more loosely too, you know, that it's not this, this um, grasp as much as you can, as quickly as you can and hold on as tight as you can, but, you know, follow the green lights. If lights turn red, take a right turn, you know, it's going to be fine. Um, and fortunately that's all worked out for me well over 25 years in the real estate business. Um, even, even the red light of not being able to invest in deals with my dad uh, turned out to be, all right, we'll take a hard right turn and go start my own business. And that was better than investing in that one deal would have been, you know? Yep. So, you're good. I'll go. Um, we keep, every once in a while, Jason, we'll, Gary and I will both have a bunch of questions we want to ask and we'll just keep stepping on each other's toes. <laughs> <laughs> or just looking at each other like are you gonna ask it? are you gonna ask it yeah <laughs> and that's the thing most of the time it turns into the exact same question that we were both gonna ask um yeah we've just done it together enough times but you you mentioned uh this first year at jtm of growing faster uh being further along having a lot of green lights and and i want to dive into how you approach growth and and looking for deals and amount of deals and things like that is it a a blitz scaling style where it's like, hey, the more the better. Is it a, a cautious style where you don't want to do too much, or are you just more selective when there's more opportunities? How do you how do you look at growth in the business? Man, that that is the uh, that's the fifty million dollar question for sure. <laughs> um, I don't know. It it's really hard for me to pass up opportunities. Um, I think that. Um, I've got a, a guy that works for me that is just really good at finding deals. And, um, and I've, I'm, I've been in this long enough. I'm able to find deals too. And so we've just had, we've got a lot of swings at the plate and um, I don't know. I really wrestle with growth because I, there's so much more stuff we could do. Um, and our main constraint is uh, investor equity. Really, that's our main constraint. And so I love raising money. Um, but I don't, if I want to go raise $20 million right now, I, it's not in my wheelhouse, you know. So we're doing deal by deal stuff. And so we raised three and a half million dollars here and four million dollars there and two million dollars here. But um, that's our main constraint. And so when I think about growth, I think about how could we go get 
ten million dollars to go do more deals. Um, because I think we're we're finding really good deals that are not on the market, and that's kind of our that's kind of our uh, not secret sauce. That's not a secret, but that's our superpower. I would say is we're finding these off market deals that we're able to negotiate at prices way better than the market would bear. Um, some people have even encouraged me just to flip the deals that we're finding because we're buying them so cheap. We can almost flip them and make a lot of money at the closing table. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I think about growth, I think about the, the two things I think about are money and people, you know, I've got really good people um, working with me now. I've got two employees here at JTM. I've got a fractional CFO who's been incredibly helpful. Um, I've got the BGW team helping me with accounting stuff. Um, and so we've got a really good team to tackle things. Um, so I feel good about the human capital part of it. And I feel like we could scale that well. Um, but it's the equity piece that's challenging. You know, every deal you got, you got 60 days to go find $5 million from investors. And that can be tough. Um, and in today's market, people are, I feel like there's kind of two kinds of people. There's, there's the, the people who are like, I'm tired of the stock market and the volatility of it. And I want to invest in other things. And then there's people that are like, yeah, but what if this, this, and this happens? I think I'm just going to keep it in cash. And both are not wrong. You know, they're just different perspectives. And so raising money is the, the biggest constraint that we've got. Um, but there's just so many opportunities out there right now. I wish we could just go tackle them all. And, you know, just another kind of nugget of wisdom that I've seen as a common theme across so many of these conversations, but you, you said it really well, you know, you have surrounded yourself with people you trust. And um, you, you got to be trustworthy <laughs> to attract people that <laughs> you could also trust as well. So I think, you know, it's a two-way street there, Jason, but um, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of wisdom in especially uncertainty, and, and that is, you know, control the things that you can control. You know, it's your attitude and your effort, but one of those things that you can control is who you allow in your, in your inner circle and, you know, just even how you um, double down on your neighbors during COVID. I just think, you know, that's that is a, a wise move and an investment that is taking a proactive approach versus a head in the sand, you know, hope it all passes and, you know, wake me when it's done kind of approach. So um, both of those, I think, even if you're not in it, uh, an entrepreneur listening to this, you know, some of those really practical life applications are clearly apparent in this interview. <laughs> so thank you, Jason. <laughs> well, 25 years in the real estate business will do that for you. You get uh, really thick skin in some places and uh, really tender parts in other places. So it, <laughs> it's been a long time, that's for sure. So Jason, as we get towards towards the end of this hour mark here, uh, I want to I wanna take a step back and flip it more on a business personal mix for you because one of the things that that I'm always impressed by when you and I talk is you you do a great job I think better than most business owners of maintaining priorities right of outside of work of time with family and making sure you're working out and staying healthy and things like that so what what do you do in your life whether it's specific structures or or anything like that to make sure that you maintain those priorities And, wow. and to be um, fair, your office being right next to Iron Tribe helps, right? You get to you get to walk <laughs> 20 feet and be in the gym. So so that does there's, help. There's literally no excuse. <laughs> if I'm not over there, they're coming over here saying, where are you? Why weren't you there today? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, my wife would say that um, I'm quick to pick up a hobby and quick to kill it or quit it. And so... Um, the things that stick are things that really are important to me. And so um, my morning routine is really important to me. My, my kids go to South Mac High School. And so they're, they're out the door by 640. I mean, it's bonkers how early they leave. But they're out the door and I've, I've made my coffee and I'm, I'm having quiet time. And 
spending some time in prayer. I mean, that's my morning routine just to kind of set my day. And that's, that's pretty consistent. Um, that's been true for a long time. Um, I think that my workout routine works well because um, I go at 1130 every day um, and it's, it is next door and they have showers and towels. I mean, it's really, it couldn't be more convenient. Um, but I joined Iron Tribe in 2013. They opened July of 2013. And the first day they were open in the warm out, in the warm up, I passed out. So that was the beginning of my CrossFit experience was literally passing out in the workout the very first day they were open. And so JD, uh, JD Brooks, who owned it at the time, just encouraged me, hey, just come back, just come back, just come back. And sure enough, I came back, came back. And um, it, it wasn't, I mean, I do like the results that you see for sure. And I'm, com I'm more competitive than I thought I was. Um, but I really love the people. I mean, some of those people I was working out with at 1130 in 2013, I worked out with at 1130 today. And so I just love the people. And that's part of what made it stick for me is that community of people um, and really feeling a sense of ownership for that community. I mean, I, I am next door. So, I mean, unlike most people at our gym, I can walk over there and talk to the seven o'clock class or the 1230 class or the 4:45 class because they're all my friends and they have been for, ten, you know, for seven or eight years. And so that habit was easy to stick because a, when I started going, I really, obviously I needed a big change in my life because I passed out in the freaking warm up. Um, but, uh, I just really love the experience of it. It's a great place. They have great staff, great people who go there. It's very convenient. Um, but yeah, that wasn't easy. And, it, and it's at lunch. So, I mean, it's a really, I really like that routine of my day of getting in my office a little bit before eight, having a solid three hour block to just crank out stuff, make phone calls. That's what my mornings look like. Work out 1130. I eat lunch here in the office. Um, and then I've got a big afternoon block to, that's typically where I do more stuff on my computer, you know, working on spreadsheets, performas, stuff like that. Um, and then, um, I'm pretty good at just stopping at 5.30 or 6 and going home um, with two teenage, teenage daughters, one going off to school next year and one not far behind. We don't have many years left of um, time around the house with the family. So I try to be around um, as much as I can and go to the dance competitions and cheer competitions because there just aren't many left. And so um, that keeps us pretty pretty centered at home, I think. Um, so yeah, man, there's certain parts of my life, I think that are very structured and routine and some that I struggle to keep structured and routine. Yep. Nope. That makes perfect sense. I appreciate you sharing that. Gary, any, any final questions, final thoughts? Uh, well, you just reemphasized again why we love uh, doing this. You know, everybody has a unique story. You do. Um, a common thread across so many of our guests has been this kind of others-focused sense. Um, and in, in many ways, you guys dispel a lot of the uh, stereotypes of CEOs or entrepreneurs or capitalism as being you know, just, you know, the, the trinity of me, myself, and I, you guys are, and you're just a great example of the antithesis of that. And so that's why we love doing this. We love being able to connect other good folks that are trying to do it right. Um, we're not, none of us are perfect, but we're trying to do it right and um, encourage other people that, hey, you know, uh, it can be done. You can, you can do this. And, and we like connecting people just like you do, which is really cool. So this has been a ton of fun. I've learned, uh, you know, new things about you, which has been wonderful. So thank you for taking time to be with us, Jason, for being willing to tell your story and be vulnerable about it too. So we appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I, I love it. And this is, this is fun stuff to do. Um, so thanks for having me. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jason. Where where can people uh, connect with you, check you out, check out the company, things like that? Yeah, so we're um, in the process of, of renovating our website now, but uh, we're at jtmcap.com, uh, JTM Capital. Um, and um, yeah, that's probably the best place. I mean, 
you can call me or email me. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's probably the best, best place to start. Okay, great. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. If, are you on LinkedIn at all? Do uh, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Jason Tuttle. All right, cool. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks guys. This is great. Really appreciate it.